You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Lenses. If you thought this was MIT, you were in the wrong place. This is our Lenses class, and we are thrilled you are here. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm the minister to single adults and uh, I'm happy to welcome you to our third installment of Lenses. The last couple weeks, uh, Chad Kossaboom and Drew Griffin have talked to us about culture and engaging culture. I say that to say is if you were not able to hear those, we are now able to podcast Lenses. Uh, if there's going to pull up a screen that is proof that we can podcast this. We've got it approved through iTunes. So if you were not here the last couple of weeks and want to hear about it, or you're going to miss one going forward, we're going to make them available to you. They should be available by Monday, the Monday following. Monday is podcast day, where we put up the sermons and the talks from lenses. Oh, look, we did it, guys. We're official. Uh, Apple recognizes us. So that's a big deal. Okay. Uh, so we're excited for that. And so what you'll hear tonight will be up and available on Monday. Tonight we have Mary Beth Thomas with us. She has been a church member at Shades for 25 years. She's going to give you her professional introduction beyond that. We're thrilled to have you, Mary Beth. Thank you very much. In front of you, you will see two pieces of paper. One is notes. And the second is our lenses questions for discussion. Towards the end, we're going to do about 40 minutes of lecture, 10 minutes of Q&A, and then 15 minutes of small group discussion. Tonight, we're going to be discussing questions 1, 6, 9, and 19. We say that for the, uh, the long processors in the group to go ahead and be starting to think of answers for these questions uh, when the small group time comes. Let us open in prayer. Lord, we praise you. We lift your name on high that you are the creator of the universe and you also knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know us intimately and you created us to be in relationship with you. I thank you, Lord, that as we discuss identity tonight, uh, that we remember where that comes from. Remember that we are a new creation in you and your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay. Is this volume good? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. Um, I am going to give you an introduction of myself, both personal and professional. Um, I know some of you in here, um, I say I know, and some of you know me. Um, my husband Rob and I have been married for almost 28 years. We've been members here for about 25. We have two children, Jake, who graduated from Auburn in May. He is in East Asia for about a year. Um, serving the Lord with Campus Crusade, and we have a daughter, Anna, who's a senior at Auburn this year, and she's majoring in social work. Um, I tried to talk her out of it, um, but that's what the Lord had for her. Um, I have been a counselor for about 30 years. Uh, I work at a place called Prescott House Child Advocacy Center, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we do because I think it's important for you to have a frame of reference as we're talking tonight. We work with kids and adolescents where they have been exposed to violence like homicide or domestic violence. They may have been victims of sexual abuse or physical abuse. And we work with them throughout the court system if they have to go through court. So I have seen some and heard about some pretty heinous things um, that we will kind of talk about 
um, as we go through our talk. I also have worked in private practice with adults who've experienced trauma, who have relational issues, who um, honestly just need some guidance. Maybe they're struggling with anxiety or depression. Um, So I kind of have a broad uh, scope of what I have worked with and what I have seen. Um, My personal life, uh, I come from a long history of godlessness, um, abuse. When I became a Christian at nine, uh, I was the only Christian in the three living generations of my family. Um, Since that time, God has actually brought virtually everyone in my family to come to know the Lord who was living at that time. I still have a brother who is not a believer, but both my parents, um, all the grandparents that were still living at that time came to know the Lord before they um, passed. Um, My husband has an equally complicated um, upbringing, so our union was actually a recipe for disaster. Um, But with God, it was really a recipe for greater glory and grace. And we have learned quite a bit about following the Lord in the midst of things that aren't simple and easy. Um, So that's a little bit about me, so you'll know where I'm coming from as we're talking. Um, Truly, our family is probably the most vivid depiction of God's grace that I know. We actually have a pillow at our house um, that says we're... God's favorite sitcom, Um, (laughs) because there is so much. Uh, Something that uh, you have to do in counseling and social work is you have to learn about something called a genogram. It's actually like a sophisticated family tree that um, maps out behavior patterns and things like that, and our daughter had to do one for um, class last year, and it normally takes up a page about this size. But hers was twice this big, and she actually had to make up some symbols um, (laughs) that weren't already established to describe our family. So um, we're talking tonight about identity, who we are, who am I? Um, And there have been some people who have offered us a lot of information about that. Um, You have... Freud and Jung and Frankel and Piaget and all these famous thinkers um, who've offered their insights, their expertise, they've offered their experience to answer that question. Um, You have probably even taken a few personality tests along the way, Um, the Myers-Briggs type indicator or the MMPI or even the Big Five and For some of us, it would be really fascinating to talk about um, who are the INFJs in here and um, other people that is Greek to you, and it's like pulling your teeth to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, Rob has been the beneficiary, or the victim, if you will, of numerous personality or IQ or interest inventories throughout our dating and our married life, and There were times where I would be giving him a quiz and make it sound like I was just having a conversation with him. (laughs) Um, I'm sure he knew what I was doing and just played along because of his love for me. But then there were times where I was very upfront and, hey, we're going to do this. I want to know and that kind of thing. I want to try to figure you out. Um, But really the best place for us to start 
in finding out who we are is looking at the one author who offers the truth about who that is. Um, So we're going to look in God's word and see what he has to say. Genesis 1 and 2 are really the primary passages about who we are, what God says about us. Um, The story of creation, I feel like, is so familiar to us that I think sometimes we read that. and We really don't attend to what God is saying. Um, If you will look... Um, just focusing on Genesis one twenty six, um, and then we're going to back up a little bit. But one twenty six, God says, "Let us make man in our image, in our likeness." And this is actually something that is contemplative. God is actually having a discussion about what he's going to do. Um, Previous to this, anything that God decided to do, he said. There was like this cadence or this rhythm to what God was doing. Um, He says, you know, in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And this is like this rhythm, this cadence that goes on. And he says, let there be waters, let there be this, let there be that. Um, And then he says, let the earth sprout vegetation and um, let the, the vegetation be of its kind. And there was evening and there was morning and there was the whatever day. And this cadence goes along. And God comes to the creation of man, and he breaks that cadence. He breaks that rhythm. And he does that for a specific purpose, not because man is like the highest of all creations. Man is the climax. It's the apex of his creation. And he says over and over, let us make... Let these things be made in their kind, according to their kind. He actually says that ten different times as he's talking about creation, the vegetation and the birds and the fish and the mammals, and every one of them according to their kind. And he gets to man. And man is not made according to their kind. Man is not made according to his kind. Man is made according to God's kind. Man is made in God's image. Um, The Imago Dei is a term that is used for that. I know we had seminary educated people speak the last two weeks. I'm not that. um, But I do know that term. And I do know that when God made man in his image, he created us with some very specific things. We, aren't, we do have some similarities to other created things, but we are not just a higher than those created things. We're spiritual. We're personal. We have the ability to communicate, to receive communication, to interpret communication, to give communication. 
We're relational. God put us here to relate to one another. God is relational. God, the Bible tells us later, God is three persons in one essence. God is community. He created us to be in community. That likeness that God gave us sets us apart. And when God did that, when he created man, he did something else as he broke that rhythm. Previously, God says, let there be light. God says. After he makes man, God speaks to man. He gives him instruction. He blesses him. He hasn't spoken to anything else he's created. He spoke them into existence. But he didn't speak to them. This is, this communicates like a transcendence. Not just that we're above the created beings. But this is something bigger than even we can imagine. The other thing that he does is he gives them some instruction. And I love that this communicates something about us very specific. God created us to need his instruction. We don't innately, Adam and Eve did not innately know what they were supposed to do. They didn't innately know God's wisdom. They didn't innately know his revelations. He had to impart those things to him. Not because they were sinners. They hadn't sinned yet. But because they were human. Their very humanness required that they be dependent on God for their instruction. It was part of their identity. He also created them for his glory. Isaiah 43, 1-7 is really clear about that. Glory is one of those words that really no other word can describe what glory is. I mean, we can try in our English language, but it is something so magnificent that it's really beyond what we understand. And he created us to bring him glory and to glorify him. Um, Paul David Tripp calls this um, a glory orientation, that that was woven into us so that we could identify the glories of the created world. And those glories would draw us to the one glory that could satisfy our hearts. We were created to bring him glory, to glorify him. Um, Perfect examples of these. Who is not drawn to a beautiful sunset? Um, These pictures I'm going to show you this Um, is actually in South Africa when our daughter went on a mission trip here. But it it just shows the beauty of God's ability to just show his colors through a sunset. We're drawn to huge mountains, to rushing waterfalls. We're drawn to to competition Um, with the Olympics. Who did not marvel at Michael Phelps winning more gold medals than some countries. I mean, how exciting was that? I mean, everyone loves to see that. And Simone Biles, I mean, she leaps and jumps at levels and flips that is, seems impossible. Um, Katie Ledecky, 
she finishes her race and it seems like an hour she's waiting on the rest of her competitors. I mean, this such examples of glory that we're drawn to. Um, those of you that know me know I'm a sports fan. Um, and over the last few years, I have become a pretty avid Golden State Warriors fan. Um, my children actually gave me a Golden State Warriors shirt for Mother's Day, and it was such a proud moment. <laughs> um, but Steph Curry obliterating the previous three-point record that he had made this year. Such an example of transcendence. Um, even though my team didn't win, I do have to give props to the greatest, planet, greatest player on the planet. Um, he also displays glory. Whether, he, whether they know it or not, they are displaying glory that God created them to display. Um, we are drawn to those things. Because God wove that into our identity. And because we're made for glory and to glorify, he made us to worship. And worship isn't something we do. Worship is who we are. It is our identity. There are not worshipers and non-worshipers. Everyone worships something. And sometimes that changes. It may be you today. It may be your children tomorrow. It may be your job. But everyone worships something or someone. And there are elements of worship that God instilled in us. The psalmist tells us to bow down before the Lord, to worship him. What does that mean to bow down? It's to give the most honor the only way to give the most honor is to give my heart, the fullness of my heart. Worship also involves obedience. And really, that's kind of a mundane display of worship. But if I'm willing to obey, it's because I value your sovereignty over me, your control over me. And that also incorporates trust. As part of worship, you have to be willing to trust whatever it is you worship. And if you're worshiping your job, you're trusting your job to do for you things it can't do for you. And worship involves service. As we serve the Lord, it is a way for us to demonstrate that worship, that quality that he wove into us. Those things, this dependence on him for instruction, for wisdom, this glory orientation, this desire to worship, those are things that are inescapable. They are part of who we are. So what went so wrong if God created us like that? Adam and Eve were perfect people in a perfect world, in perfect relationship to God, and in perfect relationship to one another. They had full access to God and his instruction. They needed God's instruction, even as perfect people in a perfect world, in perfect relation with God and with each other. But what happened was, in a moment, the single most rebellious act that has ever been committed was committed. Because this perfect person in a perfect world, in perfect relationship, 
with her perfect God, decided, I want to be like you. I want to be God. I want to decide for myself what is good and what is evil. I want to acquire wisdom myself. See, before this, the only counsel Adam and Eve ever had was from God. And now this other counselor, the serpent, weaves his way in. And he convinces Eve of something that he has no ability to to, uh, come through on. We live in an area where it's easy to minimize sin. Um, I think Chad said, and I'm not throwing Chad under the bus, but I think Chad said on the first night that sin has messed things up for us. And it has. It has messed things up. Um, And I have a couple of pictures that I want to show you of messed up. For some of you, this is messed up. Now, for some of you, this is clean. But for some people, this is messed up. And sin messed things up. There's a little untidy. Things aren't quite like I wanted them. And for other people, this is messed up. But what sin really did is a lot more like this. It wreaked havoc to the very core of what God created us to be and really defaced the image of God in us. Sin, in a moment, took a perfect relationship with man and a perfect relationship with God and instilled fear and guilt and shame. In one moment... It instilled conflict and chaos. And sin affected us in our heart. Um, That word heart, when the Bible talks about heart, sometimes you'll see the word um, spirit. Or soul, or mind. Uh, some places you'll see inner man. Um, when you think about the heart, it's the real you. It's the essence of who you are. When you go to get coffee with someone and you want to get to know them, you're not evaluating the structures of their nose. You're trying to find out what makes them tick. You want to know the real them. That's the heart. It's the causal control center. The heart is what was destroyed by sin in the sense of at that moment, our hearts were no longer drawn to God's glory. But now we were drawn to these shallow glories of the created world. Now we were drawn to get wisdom and revelation from our own selves or from whatever tickled our ears. Now we were drawn to worship ourselves. 
in, um, in Genesis 6. And there was a lot of talk about this when that Noah movie came out. I never saw it. Um, but we had some discussions at work. But Moses records of the people at that time that every intention of their heart was only evil always. Do we think that's not the case today? Do we really think that without Jesus, the intentions of our heart aren't evil? See, we live in an area where when people start talking about their sin, they say, well, I've never killed anybody. I'm not a rapist. I don't do crack. I don't smoke meth. I don't cook meth. I don't do this. I don't do that. And we go to these grandiose sins. But Eve didn't smoke crack in the Garden of Eden. No, what Eve did was she chose her way over God's way. And that was the greatest sin. It was a sin of idolatry. It was putting herself in the place of God. When we look at what the Bible says about our hearts, it's really clear. It's really scary, but it's really true. Um, It tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked desperately sick, depending on your translation. So if my heart is deceitful, it's easy for me to think I'm not doing too bad of a job because it's going to deceive me. The Bible tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. We're going to unpack some of these. I'm just going to read them, and we're going to unpack them a little more thoroughly. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actually, Rob and I had a little joke about this the other week. Um, I spilled some coffee in the car the other day, and it didn't even—it wasn't didn't get on me. And it was in my daughter's car. That's a 1999 Volkswagen Bug that is holding on by a thread, so it's like not a fancy car. And immediately I said, oh, something that starts with a C and ends with a P. And I was like, God, why did I say that? Because that's in my heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I didn't have moments of joy over spilling my coffee. I had frustration. And out of my frustration came that. Um. Jesus actually turned things up a notch when he talked about uh, this verse in Matthew 5. He said that, um, you've heard, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look on a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her where? In your heart. Because that's the causal control center of your being. And Matthew tells us that what comes out of a man is what defiles him. For from within the heart come evil thoughts. So as we kind of unpack these things, 
If you are sitting there and you're thinking, I sure hope my husband or my wife or my children are listening to this. The truth is we're our biggest problem. So as we look at that, the heart, as I said, is the control center. You don't behave a certain way or say a certain thing or do anything without those desires, ideas, thoughts being in your heart. And that our hearts direct our worship. And worship, a good way to think about this is what rules you, what you think about, what you talk about, what you say. So a 16-year-old gets a new car for her 16th birthday. And that could be a wonderful thing unless it becomes a ruling thing. And everything she does is about that car, what that car does for her. Or that seven-layer piece of caramel cake that you enjoyed after dinner can be a delicious pleasure that God allowed you to enjoy unless food has become a ruling thing for you. Because what is in your heart is what you worship. What you worship is what rules you. And whatever controls our hearts control our behavior. Um, You remember the, I don't even remember what kind of comic strip it was, but it was the devil made me do it kind of thing. No, the devil didn't make you do it. Our hearts are what made us do it. It's always the desire of our heart that leads to behavior. The other thing that's really interesting about our hearts is they're so susceptible and so fickle. Um, We sing that song from time to time. Michael W. Smith wrote it. I think it's called Breathe. Um, It says, this is the air I breathe. And it gets to the chorus and it says, um, I'm desperate for you. And I have to say, the vast majority of the time we sing that song, I'm so convicted. Because I'm not desperate for God. Um, I'll share two examples with you of people that were sharing things with me from another country. Uh, Sherry Boston and I were talking recently about kind of how to pray for our son regarding culture shock. And she was telling me that when she lived in China that there was not a single day, I mean in Thailand, that there was not a single day where she wasn't totally dependent on the Lord to get through the day, to navigate the town, to get from, from A to B. She didn't speak the language well. She couldn't communicate with people. She didn't understand the culture. She had to be so dependent on God just to get through the day. Um, another example, uh, a friend of mine was on a mission trip this summer and went to a brothel. And she was telling me about this. And she's actually a young girl, um, my children's age. She went there as part of her master's program. And she has a great relationship with her mom. And she always calls her mom before and after tough things. But her parents um, were on a cruise in Alaska. And she couldn't get in touch with her mom. And she was actually staying with her brother, who was a pastor in Germany. 
And this particular week, she had to go to the brothel. It was already established ahead of time that he was going to be in Rome preaching. She couldn't communicate with him. And she said, I just sat there and I just said, God, I don't know if I can go into this place without you. And she said, doesn't God have a sense of humor that he would require me to depend totally on him to undergo that? But our hearts are so fickle. We need to be desperate for him, and it's something we have to do daily. Um, That chorus that I talked about, I put with that, um, that 1700s um, hymn, Come Thou Fount. Um, That third chorus talks about Bind my wandering heart to thee. He says, take a fetter, like a, it's a, like a ankle chain that you would put on a chain. Tie me, physically tie me to you because my heart, I know, wanders. It's fickle. And we talked about our hearts being deceptive. And we like to think we know ourselves better than anyone else. But the truth is, we don't know ourselves as well as we want to. Why would Jesus say, take the log out of your own eye before you focus on the speck in your neighbors? Because we're so deceived, we don't even see a log sticking out of our eye because our hearts are so deceptive. It's so much easier to focus on someone else than ourselves. And our bodies will go only where our hearts have already gone. Your feet will take you only where your heart has already gone. Your hands will take you only where your heart has already gone. Your mouth will take you only where your heart has already gone. People don't wake up very rarely. And, I mean, there are times of like a psychotic break. But even when drug addiction is involved, people don't just wake up and just lose it and go off the deep end. All the things we see about in um, the media today with mass hysteria and mass shootings, those people didn't just wake up one day and decide, hey, I think I'm going to go kill a bunch of people. Their hearts had been drawn to that. And our, our behavior always tells us more about what's in our heart than it does about our situation, our location, and the other people in our lives. I mentioned that uh, the population that I work with. Um, and we've seen some really terrible things. And sometimes when people find out what I do, um, they will say things like, oh, I never, I could never do anything like that. Or maybe they come to someone's defense and they say, oh, I know such and such. They would never do that. You can't know that because you don't know what's in their heart. And their heart is what's controlling what they do. Their heart controls what they spend their time on. 
um, pornography is rampant today. It is the single greatest um, money-making industry in the world. Um, You can access pornography on any device that has any connection to Wi-Fi. Your children have devices that people can send them pornography on. Their Nintendo and their PlayStation and their Xbox and their tablet for school and their whatever. Um, If you can access Wi-Fi, it can be sent and received. People don't get involved in pornography if their heart is not already there. If they don't decide what God has given me is not enough, I deserve more, I need this. I know that's harsh, but it's true. Um, What the heart ponders is what we will do if there's not intervention. God created us as the most unique of all his created beings. He created us to bear his image. He created us with a need for his instruction and his wisdom. He created us to glorify him and to bring him glory. And he created us to worship, to worship him. We cannot escape what he created us to be. But what we can do is allow him to restore us to what he created us to be. We've talked about culture the last couple of weeks. And our culture is insane. It really is insane. I have a um, notebook that I actually had an intern do, and it's like one of those three-subject notebooks, just of social media apps that get misused. Like there are apps that are simple apps that ISIS uses to attract young kids and teenagers. Why do I know about that? Because a nine-year-old in our city had somebody use that app. She was playing a game on to lure her. It's insane, our culture. But our response to our culture has very little to do with our culture. Our response to our culture has everything to do with what's in our heart. If you were to come see me as a counselor for a variety of things, um, I, like most counselors, would probably do some things with you to kind of help you cope. I might teach you some breathing exercises to help you manage anxiety. But if I don't help you identify what is in your heart that is leading to 
whatever issue it is that brought you to me, I am doing you a disservice. Because whatever I do for you will help you in the interim. It might help you temporarily. Um, I hesitate to use this example, but it's really the best one I can think of. Um, And I'm sorry that all my examples are sports analogies, but I I told you I'm a sports fan. Um, Josh Hamilton is a famous baseball player. I don't think he's playing anymore, actually. I don't know, to be honest. I look back to my husband to see if he is. Okay. Um, During the time that he's a believer and became a believer after uh, just an injury that led to um, medication addiction and led to other drug addictions, became a believer after hitting rock bottom. Actually, I think he was a believer before that, if I get it right. But anyway, uh, one organization that he played with, he basically had a personal coach who would travel with him. He would share his room. He would keep him from going out. He basically kept him from anything that had been problematic for him in the past. This coach was this external pressure that kept him in line. And he either got traded or went to another team for more money. I don't know the exact details. But when he went to another team, they didn't have that. It didn't, that team didn't offer that for him. And not long after he went to that team, he started going out with the guys. Started getting involved with drugs and alcohol again. Why? Because he never addressed what was in his heart that was leading him to those actions. He just had some type of external pressure that prevented him from doing the things that were still in his heart. We're going to close in a little bit with a prayer, um, but I'm going to make reference to it. David knew that the only way to change was a complete heart over a hall, which is actually what we'll talk about next week. But I want to give some time for some Q&A before we talk about David's overhaul. We have plenty of time for our Q&A to talk to Mary Beth. So if you have a question, uh, I will go around and you'll speak into the microphone. And uh, I'm happy to come to wherever you are. Any questions to start us off? Everybody thinks if you ask a question, then you're divulging something. Hey, but I will divulge something. I um, borrowed, I didn't bring my Bible tonight and I forgot it. And I borrowed this lovely Bible out of the Lost and Found. It does not have anyone's name in it. My hunch is it belongs to a man because of the writing in it. But whoever it is uses it for some nice teaching. So if you happen to be the lucky owner of this black ESV Bible, you can have it after our time together. Yes. Yeah, this is good. Uh, Mary Beth, I'm going to start us off with questions. Okay, go Um, for it. Without 
breaking any confidentiality professionally. Okay. Uh, what are the lies that you see that we are most likely to believe mm. uh, that are a result of our hearts or a result of all these things you're talking about? Mm -hmm. What lies are most common uh, in your work that we end up believing and leading okay. us down the wrong path? That's a great question. Um, to start off, I'm going to tell you the thing about sin, about it being so pervasive, is it not only impacts the way that we handle suffering, it impacts the way we handle blessing. So I'm going to address that because there are lies that we believe related to both of those. So um, a scenario would be that I see pretty common is somebody has either um, been wrongly treated um, maybe they suffered some abuse or they, um, had some hard times in their life. And what they tell themselves is one of two things. One, they either believe they deserve those things. And so they believe the lies that they are not worth anything. And so they continually put themselves in situations where they get mistreated again. And that just reinforces that lie that you're not worth anything. But we know the truth. They are worth everything. Jesus left something we can't fathom so glorious and put on a confining human suit he took this form and died a brutal death because they're worth everything to him. And then you have this, another person who experiences the same kind of thing. And instead of feeling like they're not worth anything, what they do is they prevent anyone from getting close to them. So they build this impenetrable wall around their heart. And no one is allowed to get close. They control everything. And they believe the lie that they are the only one that can protect them. But that's not who God created them to be. God created them to be relational. To live in community with other people. God demonstrated a grace far beyond anything they can imagine for them. so that they can extend that grace. When it comes to lies about blessing, we believe the lies that we somehow did something to deserve whatever we have. Um, like there's even an emoji about that, you know, the hair flip emoji, because, you know, um, we do that in our house all the time. But... Somehow, I did something. I self-made myself. I rose above. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Robbing God of the glory that he deserves. In those blessings, we choose to believe we are responsible. That makes sense? Those are kind of two pretty pervasive lies that I see. Um, or... And, Along the lines of the um, troubled or abuse, well, then we have an excuse for acting the way we do. 
so I was abused, so naturally I'm going to treat people this way or I'm going to do these certain things um, because of what has happened to me. And that's a lie. We're deceiving ourselves if we think that that's justification. It definitely explains things, but it's not an excuse. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Another question. Um, in your opinion, I know you talked about like pornography, but what, mm-hmm. especially in like this culture of the South, what other sins do you feel like we try to sweep under the rug or mm. like? I'm trying to think of the right word, like downplay, especially in the line of work you're in. Hmm. Well, first I'll address just in general. I mean, the first and foremost sin we try to sweep under the rug, especially in this area of the world, is idolatry. We put ourselves on um, a pedestal. We justify the pursuit of excellence in our children. Um, and, um, I mean, good gravy. When I, when I went to college, I took the ACT one time. <laughs> Today, if you don't take the ACT six times and take three classes and have somebody else do da 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 you are not worth the salt you're made of. Because we live in this over um, excellence society and that's it's really pride so that I can say my child got the whatever scholarship or it's a lack of trust in God we didn't save enough money you can't go to college if you don't get a scholarship well if God wants your child to go to college God will take care of that if you have to if they have to work to do it. We believe these lies. We justify this self-promotion, this idolizing things that are acceptable in our culture. Um, So that's not what I I do on a daily basis. Um, There's so many sins that we sweep under the rug. I really can't even... I mean, gossip, you know, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example of robbing God's glory. Um, I am not a skilled communicator. I don't, um, things don't just roll off my tongue like water off a duck's back. I have to think before I speak about everything, I go to the grocery store and I literally tell myself as I'm getting through the checkout line, hey, don't forget to speak to this lady and ask her about her day. And I'm not kidding. I know for some of you, you're like, she needs help. But I mean, it's really, I I just, I don't think about stuff like that. I think about checking off my list and things like that. And I had some tests done last week. Um, and it's something that I really am conscious of 
being attentive to other people, and it's something that I'm really trusting the Lord to develop in me. My husband, on the other hand, can talk to any person like he's known you for years. Um, And I had these tests run, and there was another lady that she was having the same test run, and we were kind of back and forth, and she's in this room, I'm in that room, now I'm in that room, she's in this room. And we left, and I walked downstairs to go get in my car, and she's kind of like, and so the Lord's like, stop and speak to her. And so I said, are you okay? And she says, yes and no. She said, I just found out that I'm probably going to have to have a 14th surgery in the last nine years. But yes, I'm okay because God loves me, my husband loves me, and I know God's in control. And so I talked to her for just a few minutes. And as we walked away, do you know what my first thought was? Wow, you did a good job there talking to that lady stepping outside your comfort zone. I am not kidding you. Sweeping sin under the rug. Because what did I just do when I did that? I robbed God of the glory that he deserves. Because I took that glory for myself. Any other questions? Yes. I'm just curious, um, what kind of recommendations would you give to parents for helping their children identify as a creation of God, helping them understand that they were created with purpose, with, uh, Mm. you know, that they carry the image of God in their very being? Mm. Well, I mean, I think the first thing is reading the scripture with them about that. Um, Our kids are too old for this, but Amy Rushing was in the back, and she brings actually to our 11th grade Sunday school class frequently um, the children's illustrated Bible. And just reading God's word with them and telling them what God says about their creation. Um, They are hearing another thing in in school um, about their identity. And they need to know that God created them and Male and female, he created them. Right here. Male and female, he created them. It wasn't like he was, you know, you get to pick. It's very, very clear. And we need to teach the truth to our kids. So I would say communicating clearly what God's word says. And when they have questions about it, take them back to what God's word says. Does that make sense? I know that sounds simplistic, but this is the truth. I think we have time for one more question. Tate? Hi, do you have any more, like, I know you talked about bowing down and this concerns more practical application, but do you, um, like you also talked about uh, with the heart and the you know where the heart is, the body goes. Is there any uh, just any more practical application that you might have in your own life to use to you know conform to um, uh, require you know leaning on His instruction and guidance in your life and everything? 
I'm not fully sure I understood the question, um, but I think practically how we can get God's word into our hearts. Is that what you're asking? Okay. Um, I mean, this sounds so simple, but reading God's word, meditating on God's word, um, studying God's word. One of my very best friends is a missionary in Thailand, and they are home right now on a furlough. And she actually, I hope she doesn't care if I share this story, but she actually just turned 50 this year. And, um, I mean, when you think about somebody who's a missionary, she's been a missionary for, I mean, they've been, um, except for furlough, they've been in country almost the entire time. They've been married about 25 years. And she was, you know, just talking about just not being where she wants to be spiritually. And I said, you know, there's not like, we don't, there's not like some level you get to and say, hey, you made it. We are forever seeking the Lord, putting his word in our hearts, following him. It's not like, oh, great, I, I hit 50. And now, you know, it's, it's all downhill. It's not hard work following Jesus anymore. Anybody who doesn't think being living, living, and living as a believer in Jesus Christ is hard, either is completely unaware of their own personal sin or completely unaware of the sin around them. It's hard. It is hard work to surrender your heart to the Lord every day. I mean, like I said, that was a benign situation of me talking to a lady, but it was a perfect example of sin's presence in my heart. It's something we have to deal with each and every day. All right. At this time, we're going to uh, break up into our small groups. I know the choir is going to be dismissed. Before we do that, I think a good thing for us to do if we are sweeping sin under the rug is just on the count of three, everybody scream their deepest sin out loud. Um, you laugh, but uh, and when we get to three, you need to know what to say. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Mary Beth, thank you very much. The questions we are going to be answering uh, are 1, 6, 9, and 19. Uh, those are going to come up on the screen in just a moment. Um, at this time, we're going to get in groups of between five and nine people. Uh, if you have four, invite someone in. If you have ten, come on, guys, break it up into groups of five. Okay, uh, and we'll be about 15 minutes, and then we'll uh, be back together. Questions 1, 6, 9, and 19. All right, let's reconvene together. See a lot of tears, a lot of confession of those dark sins. That's good news. It's exciting stuff. We're going to have a counselor over here up front if you need to talk to somebody. Um, I'd love to hear anything that came out of your discussion, something that kind of struck a chord with your group or a disagreement your group might have had, a different chord of another note. Uh, anything you'd love to share with the group. I don't have to come to you. You can just yell it out loud. Anything good come out of your discussion? Sometimes these discussions can be lively and encouraging, and sometimes it's just pushing dirt around, uh, which is okay. It's okay. A good exercise. Uh, anything come out of your discussion? Maybe an answer to one of these specific questions.
I'll ask the question, uh, how can we engage with non-believers regarding this topic? Did anybody get this far or did I cut us off too soon? Um, uh, forget that. I'll just ask the question again. How can we engage with non-believers on this topic? Oh, gosh. Kim, in the improv world, we would make you uh, say the answer just for pointing out someone else. Oh, David, do you want to share or no? Oh, go right ahead then, please. No. That's really good, that all of us are created in the image of God and recognizing that in the other person. If you'd like to help us edit that question, I'd be willing to hear any insights. Words are hard. Uh, any others in response to that question? Uh, question nine. What's an area of my life that I need to reconsider in light of this topic? Anything that your group discussed that... Uh, yes, Amber. Well, in closing, we're going to uh, pray together. We're going to stand and we're going to read Psalm 51. This is, uh, as she said, David and talking about the heart transformation we're going to hear about this week. This is uh, David's confession. This is Psalm 51. We're going to read verses 1 to 12 and we're going to read them all together and then we'll be dismissed. So let's pray together. Have mercy on me, O Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with this, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities, creating me a Amen. Have a great night.